On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Jasmine. And Jasmine was in an abusive relationship with a tantrum-throwing addict. It's a story of love bombing, put-downs, infidelity, abandonment, and reenactments. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Jasmine. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Brandon? I am doing well, and thank you for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Jasmine is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And a content warning for today's episode. Today's episode, there's discussion of childhood sexual abuse on a couple of occasions, once when it comes to Jasmine and another time when it comes to her daughter. And there's also discussion of physical abuse in this episode as well. So that is your content warning for this episode. And unlike other episodes, this episode is a little bit of a hybrid episode between story and Jasmine telling her story and as well as a Q&A type of episode. And when re-listening to this episode, I heard a lot of things that I wasn't catching on while we were recording. So when it comes to you know Jasmine and Jasmine's story and the abuser that she was dealing with, you know, it started to look like a lot of abandonment was going on and I started to think about that more and then someone helped me, you know, kind of grow out of that. What What is this abandonment that's going on? Like what's really happening here? And we started to research abandonment and reenactment, not just a trauma bond that could be going on, but a reenactment of things that had gone on due to generational trauma. Before we get into this episode, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through uh, a lot of information for you about what I think has gone on in this relationship, which is a, a good framework to listen to Jasmine's story, because Jasmine uh, goes back to this person many, many, many times. They break up a lot, and it's just, you know, they're both in a loop here, and I wanted to be able to show a 3D picture of what Jasmine is dealing with in the relationship, but also what she's dealing with unconsciously as things are are happening, how there's this re-victimization in a reenactment of what she was going on through childhood and as well for the abuser in this situation each person is taken on a specific role so with that being said when we think about a lot of these relationships a lot of people tend to unconsciously gravitate to what feels comfortable even if it is toxic to your psychological health to your growth and when early attachment trauma is reenactment, which is what I believe is going on here with Jasmine and the abuser here, it is often based on intergenerational transmission of abuse, neglect, abandonment, 
or betrayal. And children who grow up experiencing trauma as their quote-unquote normal in their lives may be conditioned into learning dysfunctional behavior as actually being functional. And this conditioning occurs through the process of modeling and imitation from a parent to child. So this is where kids learn what is acceptable normal behavior and they see it in their homes. And when they see that in their homes, they tend to generalize that into many areas of their lives, including how they see themselves, the types of friends that they choose, and you know who they get into romantic relationships with as they become an adult. Some people might have a type of partner that they are constantly choosing, creating similar dynamics from one relationship to the next. There could be certain personality styles that are the same, similar behavioral quirks, similar past traumatic experiences that they have themselves. And, you know, these could be cyclical patterns, themes, behaviors, or habits that repeat from one relationship to the next. And this is identified as trauma reenactment. And there are three specific types of trauma reenactment, and these include revictimization, reenactment of neglect, and reenactment of attachment trauma. So, when it comes to revictimization, you know, this is where someone could choose a partner that resembles their parent. Uh, maybe they have similar physical traits, such as height or weight, could be nationality or religion. Or their partner may share similar personality traits or behavioral patterns, attitudes, or character traits that really resonate with an abusive or abandoning or neglectful, negligent uh, parent. So if there is a pattern of revictimization in someone's romantic relationships, it's likely based on an unconscious. It can sometimes be conscious, but usually it's unconsciously done, choosing partners that trigger this unhealed core attachment wounds such as abandonment, betrayal, abuse, or neglect. You know, so you could be ser- searching out someone who is physically looks like a parent. They might be outwardly invalidating. They could be a dismissive person or they make you feel unseen or unheard. You know, that could be the, the caregiver that you could have, a negligent caregiver. You know, you might be in a relationship with someone who's narcissistic, impulsive, unpredictable, emotionally volatile. And you might see these things as being safe because these are things that you know. You know, these are things that you're comfortable around, this kind of chaos. And this resonates with your early uh, attachment trauma. And in a way, this unpredictability is predictable. It's predictable in its unpredictability. And, you know, a lot of people, when it comes to, you know, the, the three specific types of trauma reenactment, revictimization is, is one of them. And the next one is reenactment of neglect. So if someone has a history of growing up with emotional or physical neglect, you know, there is a big increase in risk for this replaying itself, this pattern replaying itself in romantic relationships. A person may be unconsciously attracted to people that abandon their partners in their intimate relationships because of abandonment trauma survived in childhood. If fears of abandonment are triggered, then the person may chase their partner for validation. And also a person that has an early history of abandonment may misperceive their partner's need for space or time to themselves as being abandoned by that person, which can trigger their abandonment wounds. And you'll hear in today's story 
that the abusive person here, any sort of slight that happens where they feel that they're going to be abandoned, boom, things are going to get really messy. And, you know, this may set off a a pattern of self-defeating behavior by impulsively abandoning their partner or immediately replacing that relationship with a new one. And I think this one specifically is playing a big role in Jasmine's story today. And then there is reenactment of attachment trauma. So when early attachment trauma is reenacted, it is based on intergenerational transmission of abuse, neglect, abandonment, or betrayal. And this pattern is seen in parents who are unaware of their own trauma or have not chosen to heal it and have thus passed similar trauma on to their own children. And these can be coping strategies, uh, you know, distractions, uh, toxic positivity can be used to minimize and negate the effects of trauma, uh, denial where traumatic experiences are not acknowledged. These things can breed further trauma by invalidating a family member's experiences by repeated exposure to the same kinds of trauma or by becoming estranged from the family as, as a result of the trauma. And common patterns of intergenerational trauma include fostering codependency and an inability to be alone, cycles of abuse, neglect, abandonment, betrayal, poverty, substance, or alcohol abuse, divorce, or covert or unidentified trauma that can be, you know, taught from one generation to the next. And I think in this one, the reenactment of attachment trauma, you're going to hear a little bit of this as well as what Jasmine went went through as a child and there was, you know, a bit of a denial of traumatic experiences in a way which can affect, you know, everything as, as Jasmine gets older um, and she ends up having her own adult relationships and, and what she's seeking out. So when it comes to narcissistic abuse and specifically a Jasmine's partner in this episode, you know, the person who is the narcissist is terrified of rejection, abandonment, or criticism. You know, their childhood could have a lot of rejecting and abandoning behaviors by their primary attachment figures. And the person who is the narcissist in this situation can subconsciously seek to resolve this dynamic in future adult relationships and is consistently replicating this toxic dynamic in relationships with their significant others. And when a narcissist is faced with abandonment, they often react with anger, aggression, and even violence. They may also become passively aggressive, attempting to hurt their partner without actually doing physical harm. They may lash out and accuse other people of abandoning them, even when they are the ones who are initiating the abandonment. And you're going to hear a lot of, of that today. A, a narcissist may also feel devastated and experience deep emotional pain when faced with abandonment. And they may feel hurt, shame, embarrassed, uh, embarrassed sometimes for not being able to control their emotions. Uh, they may become resentful and think about revenge in an effort to regain some sense of control. And they may try to belittle their partner and make them feel guilty for leaving and someone who is a narcissist when it comes to this order may also go into denial they may act as though the abandonment never even happened they may speak to their ex as if nothing has changed and they could become emotionally distanced which furthers the emotional pain of the abandonment 
And this all serves in an attempt for, you know, the narcissist to avoid feeling and facing, you know, their own feelings of loss and insecurity. So when it comes to the narcissistic abuser, you know, they have experienced this emotional void in their early years and have just really become excessively focused on acquiring love and attention and admiration from other people to, to fill that void. But, you know, when it comes to the abandonment issues that arise, if the person who is the narcissist in this situation, the narcissistic abuser, believes that the person that they are in a relationship with, you know, that any of that admiration or love from them has diminished in any sort of way, this manifests in coming angry if they don't receive it, withdrawing when, you know, they don't feel like they're being adequately appreciated and adequately appreciated for them might be the smallest slight that can like really set them off. And as I already stated before, this is the story that you're going to hear today. Someone who, you know, is abandoning doesn't realize that they are the one that is the abandoner but they're they're blame shifting so much and putting it on to Jasmine you know with Jasmine with the way that she has grown up you, you know she's avoiding she's trying to avoid another heartbreaking abandonment that she has gone through and so she could be hyper vigilant about appeasing the abuser And there's just this constant emotional abandonments that are happening that really start to strip, you know, her, her sense of self, and she starts to grow insecure. That's what you're really about to hear, like where you're really caretaking the other person. And instead of focusing on your own activities, your own responsibilities, the things that you enjoy with Jasmine, her family is a big thing, her kids, you know, eventually someone who's in this situation who has dealt with abandonment and now is dealing with someone who is also dealing in abandonment, you know, you're, you're placating the abuser in so many different ways. So I just wanted to give that really long, big primer to everyone before we started to go into today's episode. So, you know, with today's episode, um, you know, this is what Jasmine is, is dealing with. And it might seem to a lot of people like it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. And, um, but this was, uh, Jasmine's life and it's just this reenactment and this abandonment loop that both of them are going through. Um, so a really big thank you to Jasmine uh, for being here, uh, and sharing her story. And now I'm just going to get out of my way and your way. Jasmine, the floor is now yours. Hi. First of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. And yeah, I I started listening to your podcast back in February after a very turbulent ending of a relationship with somebody that left me confused and I'm hundred percent broken. I've never felt that way in my life and just started to realize, okay, maybe I am suffering right now from a trauma bond. Maybe this, for this past year and a half, I have been being abused and I didn't realize it. And so, yeah, your podcast really just made me open my eyes and help me to heal honestly like it it was nice to know that I'm not alone even though 
you know, I don't like saying that it's nice to hear other people's stories because it's not like I wish none of, you know, any type of abuse manipulation. I wish it didn't exist, but unfortunately it does. <laughs> and I put up with a lot and I think it has to do a lot. Like when I look, I look back the way that, you know, I had a loving mother. Uh, she's my best friend till this day. She, you know, she did what she knew how. And I now realize that she has a lot of uh, childhood trauma too that she never, nobody helped her with. And so when it came to my childhood trauma, you know, as a teenager, I think I did hold a lot of resentment towards her about not doing more for me, uh, keeping me safe. Uh, but then now in my childhood, I, I just say, I think I look back and I, how could she help me? She can only help me from the level that she was helped at, which was really nothing. She was kind of left to fend for herself after the things that she went through. Uh, so yeah, I was the youngest child of my mom's and I grew up with one brother. I have six brothers though, but I'll get into that more later. I grew up with one brother. He is three years older than me. And my parents were married when I was born. And I was a huge daddy's girl. I love my dad. And my mom kind of jokes and says, oh, you didn't really like me. He liked, you loved your dad. And so there was a few very prevalent moments in my childhood that I remember. But the, the, the things I do remember from my childhood was, was when my dad sat me and my brother down to tell us that he was leaving and that my mom and dad, they were not going to be together anymore. And so I remember being on my, my brother's, my brother's bed and we're looking at my dad and he was saying, you know, I'm not going to be here anymore, but I'll still take you guys. And I remember just feeling so, so sad and confused. And after he left, there was really no consistency in seeing him. And like I said, I was a huge daddy's girl. So I was, I grew up a very angry child over my dad leaving. And so he did take me and my brother here and there, but it wasn't, it wasn't consistent. It was very inconsistent. And there was a lot of broken promises and there was a lot of, uh, yeah, just not, not being there. And so when my mom met my, my stepdad, I was very angry. The first, he always said, the first thing I said to him was, you're not my dad. So don't, you know, basically like, be in your place. Don't try to be my dad. And that's how it was my whole life with him. I pushed him away. I never let him in. And so when my stepdad came into my life, there was a lot of consistency. Like my mom is still married to him today. And so when I was about five, five or six, my stepdad had two sons. One was the same age as me and one was two years younger. And my stepdad moved in with us and, and my mom and stepdad wanted to go on, you know, date nights and go out. And so they hired this babysitter and he lived across the alley from us. And he was a family friend and he started to do sexual things to my three brothers and I. And I remember that clear as day. I remember how I felt in the moment. I remember how I felt when I heard he was coming over. Um, I remember, uh, you know, not wanting to go to sleep when he would do these or when he would come over because I knew what would happen. And 
none of us told my mom. I think she found out from a different family where we were living that he was doing it too. So I remember being at the police station and I remember sitting in front of a massive camera and just being questioned. And I believe he was 17 at the time. So nothing was really done. I don't know. I wasn't made into a big deal by my mom. Like I felt like it was just a normal thing that happened. So I just, I never, maybe I buried it, but I just never felt like what happened was a big deal. There was no counseling after that I can remember. I remember after he worked at a lo- the local gas station that we lived at, we lived in a very small town. And I remember my mom and my stepdad would go there to get gas and he would come and pump our gas. And I would just be looking at him and I'm like, why are we here? Like, I, I'm pretty sure like the way I felt with, with what you were doing to me wasn't okay. But I, I was just left so confused because it was never made into a big deal. So I just kind of went my whole life thinking, okay, like this is normal. This is what happens when you're a kid. I'll just kind of jump over to when I was 13 or teenage years because I don't really remember a whole lot from seven to like 12. I remember so badly wanted to go and live with my father where he lived. And so my mom finally was like, well, just go. And by this, by this point, my, my father had already started a family. He had three, three boys with a different woman. And I just wanted to be with my dad. I wanted to know what it was like to live with him. And I lasted two and a half months there because it was so toxic in that environment with my dad and his wife. There's just a lot of jealousy. His wife was, you know, I felt she was jealous of me and she totally just kiboshed that and ended up moving back to my mom's just feeling let down. And while I was living with my dad, that's when I started to drink and I came back and started giving my mom just a life of hell. (laughs) I started to skip school. I started to smoke cigarettes. Uh, I was very, very promiscuous and uh, felt like by being promiscuous, I was giving these boys what they wanted and that I would finally feel this love that I was looking for. And it never was. It was always just, you know, one-time things and then me being confused. Like, what? Like, why don't you like me? And, uh, yeah, I was was running away a lot. I was trying to sabotage my mom and stepdad's relationship. So I was making false accusations. So when I was 15, he actually ended things with my mom. And they owned a house. And... He said, you know, I like, I can't do this anymore. Your, your daughter is just out of control. And it was hard on my mom because I put her through so much. Like I said, I was always gone. I was running away. I was doing drugs. I was, it was insane. And so, and they put the house up for sale and I finally got what I wanted. My mom and me and my brother were going to be alone. And my mom got this house. Uh, to rent in the next town over and I was just so excited I'm like oh yeah finally get my mom to myself so at that point though my mom was sending me to California to go see my aunt because she was a doctor at Stanford University there and uh so she sent me there for two weeks to get a break and I'm so grateful that my older brother did this he sat my mom and my stepdad down and he said what are you guys doing you're letting her 
ruin this. You guys have been together for, I think it was like 10 years by that point. And you're going to let her destroy it. Like, tell her to go. And so when I got back from California, my mom said, I'm sorry, you can't come back here. And I was like, what? Like, what, do you, what do you mean I can't come back? You're my mom. That's my home. And she, you know, in my eyes, I thought she, for me, I'm like, wow, you're choosing a boyfriend over your daughter. Like, you're such a shit mom. But now that I look back, I'm like, no, that's boundaries. And that's amazing. I'm so glad she did it now. So I came back and I was homeless. And so I didn't have anywhere to go. And my dad had just gotten a house in uh, a, the city close to me where I lived at the time. And so I broke into his house because he was gone and I had this big party. And that's where I met my first daughter's dad. And the next day we started living together. And we were together for five years on and off after that. And there were lots of issues in this relationship. Your addiction issues took hold. And even after you had your child, the addiction issues persisted. And you did break up with the father of your first child. And eventually you do have a second child with someone else who you weren't dating at the time. And from here on out, you kick your addiction to drugs for good. And then you do end up getting married and you then did have two more children with this person. But from there, something terrible happens. It's kind of a situation that I can't really go into detail about, but I can say the reason why I I left him in February of 2021. He was uh, sexually abusing one of my children. And so the moment that that came out, I left instantly. I didn't stay. I didn't try and figure out if it was the truth or not. I just believed my child right away because I knew, I always knew that if I had that happen to one of my kids, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, support them any way I could better than I was supported. I wanted to break that, that chain of, of, I guess, making it feel normal because I had done a lot of healing in my teenage years. I got myself therapists and counselors on my own I I didn't ask my mom to help me I would do it by myself so I did do healing I knew it wasn't okay so when my daughter told me it was like bam gone packed up the kids and I left and I haven't seen him since and I do just want to clarify because some people ask um he has been charged and there is a trial set so I just want to make that clear for anybody that's listening and so I uh yeah I left in February 2021 um moved my kids to this to just to a different house in the same city that we live in uh built my life back up tried my best he my husband my ex-husband was the breadwinner so it was it was scary but I made it and after all this you eventually meet or I'll say re-meet the abuser that your story is about you had met him 17 years previous where you were living at the time, and you actually didn't like him back then. But now he's back. He finds you on Facebook. So what happens from here? I got a friend request from uh, the my, my recent ex, narcissist ex. And right away, it was like, I remember thinking in my head, I'm like, I didn't like you like 17 years ago. I don't know if I want to talk to you. Like, I hated you. He was very... He was with my friend and he was very verbally abusive and 
I actually ended up punching him back in the day because he was yelling at my friend so, so rudely. I'm like, shut up. Like, you're, you're such a dick. <laughs> and so, um, anyways, we started talking and I'm like, huh, okay. Like I have done a lot of growing. This, this has been 17, what, 16, 17 years since I've seen you. I know I'm a different person than I was back then. So, I mean, who stays the same 17 years ago? So I'm like, well, maybe he's different. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt and started talking to him. And, and, uh, I was like, huh, he seems very different. He seems like he has his head on his shoulders. And I'm like, wow, like good for you. You know, I knew that he was an addict back in the day. He had kind of a rough growing up where, you know, his mother abandoned him and, and his dad was using drugs with him and and so he said he tells me he's in recovery for six months he was clean and I'm thinking right there when he told me he was in recovery I was hooked right then and there I was like wow he's in recovery this is amazing and even though I had this my red flags were going off like every time I talked to him I'm like this I had anxiety I didn't feel safe but I thought it was just my ex-husband stuff creeping in like be careful. Remember what happened with your ex-husband? Be careful. So I blamed it on that. So him and I talked for about two weeks and bam, all of a sudden he was gone. I don't even know where he went. I started to look in the obituaries and I started to ask people like, hey, have you seen so-and-so? Like, is he okay? Like maybe he relapsed and died and Anyways, I kept him on my Facebook and then I seen he commented on something and I was like, okay, well, it's good. I'm glad he's alive. Then that was in May of 2021. And then July 10th, 2021, I get this message on Snapchat and it's him. And he says, Hey, I just want to apologize for, you know, just up and leaving you. And I, you have been through a lot in your life and I didn't want to bring more pain into your life with my stuff and and he's like I hope you can forgive me and and of course I, I said to him yeah of, of course I can forgive you like we're just friends like there's nothing wrong here but I would honestly after he had ghosted me I was very sad I felt abandoned again and I don't I'm still trying to figure out what in that two weeks of just talking why I got so hooked on him but I was like instantly like hooked and it's not, he didn't do anything. There was really no love bombing. I felt that I looked back, not in that two weeks, but when he came back in July, there was a lot of love bombing real quick. Uh, I wanted to, I tried to take things slow. I didn't want to bring a man into my kid's life. So suddenly I, you know, ha I, I tried to have boundaries and I, I did, I guess, but he, he did take up a lot of my time. He would call me, FaceTime me a lot just always want to be on the phone with me and I always felt afraid to say I had to go and he would send me transfers and say here buy your kids some pizza uh and there was a couple times from and keep in mind I hadn't seen him yet in 17 years and well he had made, made a plan to come down in August of 2021 to see me because he didn't have a car at the time working and was in a cap job so he was always gone 
And so I had said to him, well, you can come and visit me, but you can't stay at my house because I have my kids here. So he had, in between July and August, he had ghosted me again a couple of times, but he came up with really good excuses. One was, uh, oh, I was getting tested for sleep apnea and my, my phone got stolen while I was being tested for sleep apnea. And that lie I knew was such a lie. I was like, okay, this everything is in my my mind is saying red flag, red flag. But I'm just like, no, like he makes me feel good. Like we're gonna just continue this. And so he was he was using. That's why he ghosted me, and wasn't in recovery. And then he came down in in August, and we reconnected, saw each other after sixteen, seventeen years. And he stayed for the week at the Airbnb. And uh, so I went and I saw him and I spent, I think, every day with him as much as I could. I just wanted to be with him. And he uh, he did he did try to seem he wanted to take me and my kids out for dinner after I had told him several times, no, that's not going to happen. I don't want you meeting my kids yet. And, uh, so when he came down for uh, the visit, he had taken me grocery shopping, which now I look back is weird. Are you buying me groceries? <laughs> uh, he would fill my tank up with gas. So here you have this person that ghosts you, but then this love bombing happens and you're brought back. He's being overly generous with things. You've stated a boundary about your kids and he's pushing back on these boundaries. He's not respecting things. And you had this general bad feeling about him, but you have this addiction to him already. And this is going to override a lot of your decisions. And this is reenactment that is happening here with you. So now a promise of trips and adventures is about to happen. A future faking type of love bombing. So walk us through this. And so then he went back to work. and. Uh... Then he says to me, oh, your son's birthday is coming up. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, why don't we go to uh, Edmonton for the week for uh, a few days with the kids? I'll take all you guys there. So I was like, wow, no one's ever done that for me. Like my ex-husband never wanted to travel. He never wanted to do things like that. And so he footed the bill and my kids met him in Edmonton when we stayed at the Airbnb and uh, he had this cake professionally made for my son and he had gifts for my kids. He had gifts for me. He was saying on social media when he was on the airplane landing to come and meet me and the kids after work, he put on there. I was so excited to meet my family. And, but in my brain, I'm thinking, wow, like he really wants a family. Like he's going to be there for us. He's going to take care of us. But really, it's just, you know, all love bombing, which I had no idea what that was at the time either. And uh, so, yeah, he met my kids and they hit it off and we had a really good time in Edmonton. And we took the kids swimming and we did a lot of fun things. And then he came back. He came back with us to my house and he basically just started living with us. It wasn't really a conversation we had talked about. It was just, okay, boom, you're living with us. This is how our life is now. And so when he came back with us from Edmonton, he actually bought a car. He bought a BMW. He was all of a sudden all about having all these nice things. 
And I thought it was, you know, I felt like, okay, cool. Like I'm dating a guy with BMW. This is kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of cool. And, and, um, about a month went by and he, he was gone for three weeks at a time, roughly. And then he came back for Halloween. And I remember I went through his phone. I just had this suspicion. I went through his phone and he was talking to other women and he was saying some pretty sexual things to them. And so I told him and he just like, he's made it sound so good. Like, oh, well, you know, the reason why I did that is because it was really scaring me. You had just left your ex-husband and I didn't know if you were serious about us and it just really scared me. But now that I know that you're serious about us, I would never do that again. And I'm like, oh, like, I'm sorry that you were so scared that I wasn't sure if, if I was serious or not about it. So here's a moment where you catch him cheating and he's just able to flip it around on you and make you feel bad about it, which is a pretty smooth manipulation flip on his part. So after this, he then has a relapse. So now you're dealing with the beginnings of abusive behavior and addiction issues. And this can be very confusing. So what happens from here? First relapse that he admits to. So I knew he was relapsing in the time that we were talking, but he admits to this one, he had totally ghosted me for 30 hours. And so I had reached out to his family at this point and his family really liked me and his, his aunt and his cousin were taking, or his cousin was taking care of his money, his finances. So when he got paid, it would go into their joint account. And then my ex had his own account and she would send him money as he needed, because if he had money, he was off using. And I didn't know this until maybe two months into our relationship. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, but at the time, I'm just like, at the time I didn't think anything of it. I'm just like, okay, this is just a man that's trying to better his life, trying to come back from things. He's trying to get stronger and this and that. And so I reached out and I said, I don't know where he is. And they said, oh, well, he's probably out using. And I'm thinking, well, what? he's been in recovery for almost a year. Like December 6, 2020 is when he quit. And his cousin's like, is that what he told you? And I'm, yeah, he's been using for, for months. And I am like, and I knew that, but it was just a confirmation that, okay, I'm not going crazy. He's using, okay. And she said, you know, when we first met you, or when we first heard that he had a new woman, we were so excited that finally somebody was going to take him off our hands. Someone else could look after him. And she said, but now that I get to know you and I see what you just came from, like you need to run. And I'm like, why, why do I need to run? Is it just trust me? She's like, just go, you need to go. It's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I'm thinking, well, I can't now because he's, he's finally out of his, he's done. He's out of drugs and he's texting me and he's saying, I'm so sorry. I can't lose you. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And so in my head, I'm thinking, well, I can't leave now. Like, look at me. I'm going to help him. I'm going to be, I'm going to ride in on my white horse. And I'm going to help this addict. I can finally fix somebody because I never got my dad to stay. So maybe I can get him to stay. <laughs> and so I, and then I also felt responsible if he had overdosed and died. If he had maybe gone off the deep end because I ended things. And then, yeah. I, and so I stayed. and. It got, got worse. 
So you're confused. There's these rages and tantrums. And you wrote to me that you started to look up abuse online and things started to kind of really resonate with you, but you really didn't want to face it at that time. So what were you thinking here? And what were some other abusive things that he was doing? He's like, no, he's not. He's just an addict. And he, he didn't have a good upbringing and he doesn't know how to regulate his emotions. And he didn't have a mom. He would gaslight me. Like he would say, he would bring up like my past traumas with my ex-husband and he would make make you know pedophile jokes and he would pretend like my my ex-husband broke into the house while I'm sleeping and I would wake up and I'd be like what are you talking about and he'd be like oh I think he's in the house and and then I would I would get really upset and, and he would say I'm just joking like calm down go back to bed obviously you need to go back to sleep if you're that grumpy and he would make little comments about like I like to get my eyelashes done and he would say you're so fake like you just you just get lashes done you're just fake and I'm like okay like thank you and he's like I'm just kidding babe like your lashes are beautiful and he would make comments about my parenting all of a sudden I'm not this perfect parent anymore and I remember being confused because he had two sons that he never that he abandoned and I'm thinking but like you don't take care of your kids I do and you know if my kids didn't clean up their messes he would say you don't even teach your kids anything they're not they're going to grow up knowing nothing because you don't teach them this and that they don't even know how to flush the toilet how hard is it to teach them how to flush the toilet and then that would upset me and I would I would go silent like I would never honestly I would never really fight back with him I would just go silent I just would completely shut down it was like flight or freeze I'd go into freeze mode I wouldn't know what to say or what to do. And then, and then all, all day he would say, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then finally I would tell him and he would say, oh my gosh, here we go again. You're so sensitive. I don't think this relationship is going to last very long because I just can't handle your sensitivity. And he would just like criticize me on the littlest things like putting, I was putting water in a pot one time and it was cold water. And he came and he shut the tap off and he's like, why aren't you putting hot water in there? Don't you know how to do anything right? And I'm like, what? What just happened there? Like we were having a really good day and now it's supper time and all of a sudden, bam, just the switch went off in his head. And I'm like, now I can't put water in properly. Like what? Like I just, it was so confusing. It was so, yeah, there's not even an explanation for it. And so uh, I kept just trying to, I just kept trying harder and harder and harder to make him see me, see my value, see my worth. Like he did in the beginning, because in the beginning it was like, okay, I'm this amazing person. And now I'm basically just feeling like, I felt like a piece of shit. Like I felt like I wasn't worthy. I felt like I couldn't do anything right. I didn't feel like a good mom anymore. And I just kind of, I kind of just gave up on making myself happy. And my kids, even my kids were like, mom, like we, you don't spend time with us. You don't care about how we're feeling anymore. And my kids suffered. They really did. So at this point of your relationship, the put downs, the gaslighting, the nitpicking, the outbursts, you begin to be in a little bit of a freeze mode that's taken hold a little. And now it's affecting, you know, your kids too. 
your worth is in his hands and he's really able to push and pull you here and you're ping-ponging and that is not a good thing. So eventually you don't freeze. There's this big gaslighting incident that happens and you call him out on it and this has him lash back on you saying that you need to be on meds, which so many people listening have heard this kind of tactic before. So walk us through this. So then after that, he had said to me, I think you need to try out new meds because you're just, you're going crazy and I can't handle that. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to be with you. And so I was like, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, okay. So I made a point with my doctor and I got on new antidepressant slash anxiety meds. Keep in mind, he's not looking to make himself better. I'm the problem by the, at this point. And so I went and I saw the doctor and he says, you know, I'm really proud of you for admitting that you have this problem and you know just because your ex-husband did this to you did something to you doesn't mean that I need to suffer for it so even though you are on meds now he still hasn't changed he's doing nothing and eventually once again his addiction issues will show up again and he eventually has to go to rehab again he'll make a lot of promises Once more, he'll make a lot of promises and how he'll be a better person after. And you're still thinking that it's his addiction issues that have to be fixed. And if that gets fixed, then everything else will be fixed. So what happens once he gets out? And so, yeah, then he got out of treatment and I thought, okay, everything's going to be perfect now. Everything's going to be great. He's sober. He's clean. (laughs) Honestly, it was worse from when before when he was using. So the first six months were better than after treatment because after treatment is when everything, I think by that point he already knew he had me hooked. I wasn't going anywhere. And it was like, okay, I put her through hell and back. I can do whatever I want now. And he did. (laughs) So he got back from treatment and, and he, you know, he was really helpful around the house. But by this point, my mental health was so bad. He was getting my kids off to school. And I never asked him to. He was just super happy to be there and, you know, being that fatherly figure that he wasn't to his kids. And I, I allowed him to be, even though he wasn't a great example of a man. I, I remember thinking, I do not want my son to be like this man, but I'm going to continue to be with him anyways. <laughs> and uh, so he would get my kids to school. And then one day he would, he just snapped. What kind of mother are you? You don't get them to school. I'm the one that's doing everything for them. And I'm thinking, I was like, okay, well, you never, you never told me you felt this way. Now you're blowing, you're just blowing up and freaking out. Like, could we have had this conversation before you blew up maybe, you know? And, And I remember that was confusing because he was saying, you know, these rude things about my parenting and how I never do anything for them. And then... I was like, okay, well, like, if the problem is that you just don't like getting them off to school, like, just tell me and I'll, like, I've been doing it my whole life. (laughs) It's not a big deal. And he's just like, well, you're just lazy. You have no ambition. You have nothing. And, uh, and so then, like I had said earlier, he bought that nice BMW and, uh, he was very particular about it and he didn't like. He didn't like allowing my kids in his car. And it really bothered me because I'm thinking, if you wanted this nice of a car, don't pick a family. Like, go be single then. And, you know, 
the one moment it was at the end of April and he, my youngest daughter got her footprint on the back of his car seat and he lost it. But he said, there was a couple of F words in there. And I said, you know, it's just a car. So that was my response. It's just a car and it can be clean. I will F and clean it for you when we get home if it's that big of a deal. And he like slammed on the brakes and he turned around and he went back to my house, to our house. And he started packing his bags. And I'm like, where are you going? I'm leaving. This is bullshit. You don't care about nothing about how I feel and this and that. And he's uh, basically making a huge mess of the house before he leaves, leaving a big mess. Grabs, like he grabs my purse and he's looking for something and he dumps it out. And I said, you know, can you clean that up? And he's like, you do it. And so I'm like, okay. And I just, I stayed quiet and I told my kids like, just stay quiet. And then when I asked him to clean up, he's like, why? Your kids don't have to do anything around here. They're useless. Why do I need to? I'm like, all right. Okay. So I just let him leave quietly. And that was, and that was just, you know, uh, about his car. And I just, I remember again being confused and I'm like, it's just a footprint. Like I could have cleaned it off. You could have just communicated it to me, but you know. So here's a moment where the non-addict version of him has a blow up. He's very concerned and concentrated on how he's feeling. There's no regulation of emotion. He blows up on your child and it's a glimpse of a tantrum like a kid would have. And you then go through a series of him leaving and you taking him back. This goes back to reenactment, a revictimization, reenactment, reenactment of neglect, reenactment of attachment trauma, and it's happening on on both sides. So when it comes to your story, you know, I guess when he's leaving and you're taking him back, you know, just tell us how this worked, you know, from your perspective. It was never me. It was never me kicking him out. It was him leaving something, something I didn't do properly or something I didn't do right. And he would leave. And now that I look back, it was probably just to go. I don't think he was using, um, but I, I think he was maybe cheating or because he would come back and then he would love bomb me again. He would buy me things. He would uh, promise me and the kids trips. And I remember after a big fight and he would, I remember thinking, okay, like I do need to be done with him. I need to be done with him. And then he would say, oh, I want to, like Niagara Falls was another trip that we went on. And he started talking about that. Stop telling my kids about it because I don't know if we're going to make it that far. Because at this point I knew I had to leave, but I didn't know how because I knew he wasn't going to leave quietly. I knew it was going to be a big deal. And I knew it wasn't just going to be this simple little breakup. And, uh, yeah, it it just started to get worse. He started to be gone more. He was like basically living like this single life. And then at the end of the night, he would come back to me and the kids. And then I would be, I'd be upset and I'd be like, you know, you're not, you're not spending time with me. You're not, you're not bringing me out with you you basically just get to do what you want. And I remember this, he specifically said the one time, but you need to realize that if we break up, those kids don't come with me. So it doesn't really matter when I'm gone. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, that's your mindset. That's, that's, that's awesome. That did not make me feel secure at all. 
because six months prior, he's telling me, I love these kids. They're my kids. I'm their dad. This and that. And all of a sudden, bam, like, if I leave, these kids don't come with me. And I'm like, all right. So then I would try harder. I'd try harder for, you know, to make the, make, I would make, try and make my kids appreciate him. I'd be like, don't forget to save so-and-so. Don't forget to thank him for that. Or if, if he was coming home from uh, Narcotics Anonymous meeting or just coming back from being with friends, he would call me and he'd tell me he's on his way. And I remember going around the house, making sure, you know, everything is put in place. And if the toilet wasn't flushed, he would literally come and wake me up in the middle of the night or not in the middle of the night in the morning. And he would say, your kids didn't flush the toilet again. I'm not using it. Can you go and flush it? <laughs> so he would wake me up on a Saturday morning for me to go and flush the toilet. And so I would make sure the toilet was flushed when he would get home. I would make sure my kids' rooms were clean when he got home because it was like these kids weren't allowed to make messes. They weren't allowed to be kids. They were had to be this perfect, perf- these perfect kids. And I had to be this perfect girlfriend who, you know, I remember I would fold his laundry and if it was inside out and the pockets were on the outside, he'd be like, why is it like this? He just always had something clean about there. I, I wanted so badly. I was so fixated on the beginning of our relationship and how it was and how it felt that I was trying so bad to get back to that. But it just never was working. It was never happening. And we started going to a couple's therapist. We went to her for nine months. And I remember feeling really good after we would leave because for the first day or two, he'd be really good. He'd be very considerate of my feelings. He would try a little harder, I guess. But it was very, it was always short-lived. I knew I was still the same person as I was in the beginning. I was still loving. I was still caring. I was very empathetic towards him in his situation. I always made sure that I wasn't triggering him. I, I was always, okay, wake up every morning. How can I make him happy? How can I make sure that he has a good day? And if, if he woke up having a bad day, all of us are having a bad day. Yeah, and you know, and then there was times where he would say certain things like, "If I didn't do something, he would take away." Like I don't know how many times he took away the Niagara Falls trip. There's several times you'd say, "Well, we're not going anymore." Cancel the Airbnb, and then I wouldn't reply for a while, maybe like an hour, and then I'd say, "Okay, are you calm down now? Are you sure you want me to cancel the the, the trip? What are you talking about? You're the one who wants to cancel it." I'm like, "No, I never said that. That you know, I didn't." You know, and then I would be confused. Okay, maybe did I say that? I didn't say that. I never wanted to cancel the trip. So right here, you are mentioning his gaslighting and him holding things over your head, giving you all something, and then the threat of taking it away. It's a real big power and control play. But we're also hearing that you are doing everything to make the household and your life easier by making yourself small. And his mood is dictating everything. You're, you're really making yourself small, so there's no blowups or, or tantrums. So from here, you found evidence of him cheating. So how do things escalate from here? Things just escalated. And then there was just before my birthday uh, in June of 2022, when I... Uh, went through his phone and I found some stuff in there and I confronted him about it. I I knew that he was doing sneaky things behind my back and I wanted to know what he was doing. And you'd ask him, he'd probably call me psychotic. No matter what, I wasn't going to leave. I was, I was so trauma bonded to him. 
that I, he, he could hurt me anyway and I, it wouldn't matter. So that morning when I found that stuff on his phone, my daughter was at home and my daughter was just going through some pretty traumatic stuff with her abuse. And she was upstairs and me and him were downstairs and we were fighting and he was punching. Uh, he punched a fan off the ceiling and I just, I ended up just walking away. I went upstairs. I left and he followed me upstairs and he was calling me names repeatedly. And my daughter ended up just, you know, screaming at him and saying like, shut up, get out of the house, leave, leave my mom alone. And that was when he called she should go and sleep with older men because that's what she likes and by that point I tried to leave the house he punched a hole in the wall upstairs after he yelled at my daughter and then I was trying to leave the house and I got trapped in between the door and the frame and he like slammed the door on my stomach and I started crying and it wasn't didn't really hurt but I was just more like wow like what is happening? And so he left. Finally, I called my dad because my dad was in around that time. And I said, I need you to come here right now. Cause I didn't want to call the cops. I didn't want, I knew if I called the cops that I potentially lost him forever, but I just wanted him to be scared a little. And I wanted him to leave because my daughter was really upset. And so my dad's like, okay, like I'll be there soon. And, and, I, and so, uh, my dad came and by this point he was already gone, packed his stuff and he left. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of days and then showed him and I said, you know, are you just going to ignore me forever? Like, I don't know what I did wrong here. And he was just so fixated on, you went through my phone, you reached privacy. And, and I just said, okay, yeah, but what about the stuff I found on your phone? Like, what does that, like, it was never about what I had found. It was about what I had done. And I remember just eventually just dropping what I found and being like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did that. And I I took ownership for everything. It's my fault. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Maybe if I didn't go through your phone and find those things, like we wouldn't be fighting right now. So yeah, I think you're right. I'm sorry that I went through your phone. <laughs> and so uh, I ended up letting him come back like two weeks later. During that two week phase, he was love bombing me again. He was sending me gifts to my house. He bought me Michael Kors purse that I always wanted. And uh, would love bomb my kids too because he knew my kids were they my kids were not liking the way he was treating me. But I know I feel like my oldest was almost maybe a little bit trauma bonded to him too because she was she was really attached to him, and I still don't know why. Like he, she, I do know why. Like he, he was really something else to her. Like he was buying her things behind my back like I was trying to get her to stop vaping and I was going through hell with it and I was giving her you know disciplining her and giving her consequences for vaping and then he to find out that he's buying her vape stuff behind my back and supporting her vaping habit and so eventually I just became okay with her vaping when I wasn't I'm like okay well like I guess he made the call my kids allowed to vape and her dad was upset too like we literally come together her dad and I and we would try and be you know we would say no more vaping we would take her vapes and then here is my boyfriend at the time doing the complete opposite of what I'm trying to do with my co-parenting you know and so it was almost like he was her little like they were best friends because he was he was literally at her 
her mind level. Like it was when I look back, it was crazy to see actually. Like I, and, uh, and then, you know, then we had our trip to uh, Niagara Falls and that was something that my kids are really looking forward to. So I felt like after that situation and my birthday there, I couldn't leave them because my kids were just talking about Niagara Falls. Okay. So I'm like, I can't take that away from them and I can't afford to go there on my own just with them. So it was always like, okay, I don't want to disappoint my kids. I don't. And I, I, I feel like that was a tactic that he used too, right? Like just always make her look forward to something in the future so that I can just do whatever I want and she'll still be there. And it, that, that was the case. And so we ended up going to uh, Niagara Falls for, I believe it was 10 days. And we picked up his son, we drove to Toronto, and then we drove to Niagara Falls. And, you know, the trip up there was really good. There was a couple instances on the way up where he got upset of my kids being loud. But I remember being so on edge the whole time. I'm like, all right, like, he's going to he's gonna lose his shit any second and be mad at my kids. And he actually did pretty good on the way up. So before we get to this trip where you take a side trip to Canada's Wonderland, uh, physical intimidations are now happening. Then an actual physical abuse happens. A bond has formed between your daughter and him. His tentacles are, are everywhere with these bonds and, you know, people in your family now. And, you know, we talked privately about this and you told me that, that even though you wanted your daughter to stop vaping, you really started to understand that it was just her way of coping with what she was going through, you know, within the home and from previous things that happened to her. So going back to Canada's Wonderland here, you're about to be going on this trip and you're about to see how things really need to be focused on him. And anything he perceives as a slight uh, has like all these blow ups happening. And this goes back to, you know, reenactment, reenactment of attachment trauma, reenactment of, of neglect and, you know, a, a revictimization that's going on with him. And then your responses to those are, are a part of that, too. So I guess walk us through this. We went to Canada's Wonderland and I'll never forget it. He, it was honestly the moment we walked into Canada's Wonderland on the first day and we had walked in and two minutes later, him and I were fighting as I said something too loud and he didn't want the kids to hear. And he was like, shut up. What the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm like, whoa, I'm like, why would you just tell me to shut up? And he's like, the kids are going to hear you. What the F? And I'm like, okay I'm, i said you know what you go that way i'm going this way and i just ended up totally splitting from them and he took the bigger kids and i took the little, little kids and then he's texting me i don't remember what he was saying but he was just way to ruin this trip so far with two minutes into canada's wonderland and you already have attitude and i'm thinking no i'm just not gonna let you talk to me that way so no me like you just told me to shut up and you know i'm not gonna put up with that but it was my fault because i didn't put up with his disrespect so we went on about our day and we ended up meeting up and then we, I don't know, I don't know if he said sorry or not, but I just ended up thinking, okay, like we are hours away from home. I'm not going to let that situation dictate our whole day. So I just ended up dropping it, even though it still bothered me, but I knew if I brought it up, 
there was just nothing would be resolved. And then uh, later on that night, uh, my kids were in the kind of like the kitty land area, Canada's Wonderland. And if anybody's been there, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a Disneyland, maybe pretty big. And uh, he was on the phone. And while he was on the phone, I just ended up getting up, walking away to go check on my kids. And as I'm walking away, I'm texting him saying, I'll be right back. I want to check on the kids. And then he, he texts me and he said, wow, way to fucking ditch me. And I'm thinking, I just texted you like, I'm, I'll be right back. Right. And he's like, no, don't fucking bother coming back. You're just a ditcher. And I'm, so then I ended up running back to him because he was upset and I wanted to make sure everything was okay. And he was already gone. He left with his son. And I said, what just happened? Like, I'm going to check on my kids. I, my kids don't have phones and it's dark outside and this place is huge. And he said, uh, uh, no, like, just leave us alone. I'll see you back at the car later. Like, basically just F off. And I'm thinking like, oh, my gosh. And I'm calling him repeatedly. I'm calling him repeatedly. No, he totally just up and ditched me. But no, I'm apparently I was the one who ditched him, though. So, <laughs> so I, I was really afraid to meet up with him at the car at the end of the night. So I took my kids to the bigger side and I went riding with my oldest, went on a couple of rides. And then we met him back at the vehicle. And he said nothing to me up, uh, until the next day. I got ignored until the next day around supper time is when I'm, I texted him. Like, he didn't even sleep in the same bed as me. He slept downstairs. And I remember that whole day, I was thinking, I'm like, I need to, like, I want to go home. I, I just texted him, and I said, all right, I'm going to be the one to break the ice. And I said, what is wrong? And he said, I hate it when you just take off from me. You know I don't fucking like that, and you do it all the time. And I said, we have five children here. Sometimes I'm going to take off, and I'm going to go look for the kids because I have a phone and you have a phone and we communicate, we can communicate like that. Like we are not here just by ourselves. And then he said, well, I'm going to be leaving soon with my son. You can stay here with your kids. And, uh, he's like, we're going to go have some fun. And I said, okay, well, I already pre-bought all those tickets. So you're going to go and do it without us. I remember I was so upset. Like I was looking back at pictures of that night because I took a couple pictures with him. And I just looked so sad and he looked so happy. And I'm, I was just, I was at that point, I was just so empty and I'm, I didn't know. I did still didn't really know what was going on. I just thought, okay, he's just in recovery. He's going to learn how to be a good human being. Eventually I just need to be patient and I'll have the man that I've always wanted. I'll have the man that I had in the beginning, but that was just all of, it was fake. It was just somebody he had to put on the show to be. So after this event, you know, from my perspective, when we're talking about a lot of reenactment that is going on, yes, there's this trauma bond that is there too, but you're both uh, in this reenactment loop that is, is really happening. Him not talking to you, him pulling away, him leaving, you know, he's abandoning you after 
he thinks that you abandon him, you know, it's causing a huge distress in you. And when these things happen, and I'm sure this happens to many people who are listening, you know, the same things happen to them. Any boundary here can evaporate. You want the communication so bad that you're willing to kind of step over that boundary line and placate whatever is going on. Logically, you're able to have conversations about the issues that are right in front of you. And logically, you know, things aren't right but yet you still don't know what's going on and you yourself are just reacting to this stimuli that's being presented to you. So, you know, when it comes to the continuation of the story, the next day, it's very similar to the one that you just went through. He once again has one of these big abandoning blowups because you went to get your daughters from the water slide so you could all have a family meeting about communication while at the park. And all of this really just starts to continuously happen over and over again. It's this this abandonment loop cycle that you are going through. And there are more stories about this. There's a lot of stories about this. So eventually you hit the breaking point of your relationship. And after you come back from a trip you were on, uh, you confront him about the evidence that you found that he was uh, cheating again. So walk us through this. And um, I kept it in the whole time in Costa Rica and I never brought it up until we got home. And that was the night that I kicked him out. And I said, like, get out. Like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And then uh, he told me that I'm a loser and that I should go die. And all my kids heard it. And my daughter ended up sending him a nasty text. I'm really proud of her, though. It was, it was an amazing text. She told him to get out. I told him to get out. He's, he ended up sleeping one more night there. And then he left the next day. And it was honestly uh, a whole month of being gaslit through emails. I would block him. And then he would get his NA sponsor. Why? why uh, like his, his flying monkey was his NA sponsor. and. Uh, a lot of manipulation and a lot of uh, people said this about you. People said that about you. I heard what you're doing on Facebook. You're posting sexually explicit photos on there. And I'm set, screenshotting every picture on my Facebook and showing him. And keep in mind, I'm not even with him. This went on until like two and a half months ago. I finally ended things with him for good. Um, but from January until May, honestly, it was hell. January was the worst where I couldn't leave my basement I just laid in bed all day. I had no ambition that during that no contact, like I said, I started listening to your podcast and some of the stories were so similar and I'm like, okay, like he's not going to change. And then there's that little party where that's like, but maybe this is different. Maybe he's just an addict and he hasn't learned this stuff. Maybe, maybe he's not a narcissist, but he definitely is. And, and, you know, from, from March until May, I read nine books, different self self-help books I started going to church and I'm not I'm not even really a believer but honestly I was so desperate to get out of how I was feeling that I would do anything like I would have done tried anything I I like I started I was too scared to leave the house because I thought that he was I was going to run into him and I couldn't handle seeing him if he was with another woman um but then eventually I started to feel a little stronger I started to go to the gym and I uh like every day I start, I've been going to the gym pretty much every day and I started spending more time with myself and getting to know myself 
and starting to love me and finding my worth. And, and honestly, that when he wanted to reconcile, I went and I met him and I, I was sitting in his car with him and I was, he was looking me in the eyes. I am so sorry for all the ways that I've hurt you. And, and I love you. And, and I, I want to make this work. I want to move back into the house. I want to have that family, this and that. And I need to get myself healthy first though. And I can't even think about being with another woman. And, and I just like, it felt like complete bullshit. And I, I, I felt it. I'm just like, I feel so disgusting right now. Like everything you're saying to me is bullshit. And it was because three days later, it lasted for three days. And I, and I told him I'm done. Like, I can't do this anymore. Leave me the fuck alone. Stay out of my life. Honestly, I made myself stronger. He, he literally by him saying, I need help. I need to get therapy and I need to do this and that. All it did, I, I did that to try and keep him, but all it did was made me stronger and made me realize that I didn't need him. And he really just did me the favor because, because now I'm, you know, I'm single right now and I'm loving me and I'm, I'm have, I have boundaries in my life now. And I, there's, you know, certain behaviors that I'm not putting up with anymore from people. And he's all, you know, a week after I had ended it with him, he was with somebody new already. And he's been dating her now for, I don't know, a couple months. And it's like, okay, just kind of shows me who the loyal one was and who wasn't. And he was a lesson for me to know that I cannot fix anybody but myself. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would it be? Really, truly, strongly hope that nobody out there that is going through this type of abuse thinks that they are the problem because you aren't. You can do everything until you're freaking blue in the face and it'll never be enough. So, yeah. Well, Jasmine, I really want to thank you for being here with us today and sharing your story and validating so many people's experiences. So a really big thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. So Jasmine, thank you once again for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Jasmine was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out the Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there, and you can share your experiences and make friends as well. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. Domesticshelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to domesticshelters.org. 
And we also have a new friends to the show, and it's a place called Shelter Movers. And Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. It is currently only in Canada, but they're looking to move into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety and get all of your things out of your home and into storage all of your belongings into storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization, so if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode, for today's Survivor's Story. So for myself and Jasmine, we hope you have a good night.